Thank you for tuning in to the Voice of the Victim podcast. We discuss a lot of sad and potentially triggering things on this show. We try to be as sensitive and cautious as possible, but if you are sensitive to things involving abuse and may be triggered, please think twice before listening to our show. Welcome to the Voice of the Victim podcast. I'm Ryan. And I'm Rosie. First of all, we want to say thank you to our newest patrons, Cassidy, Megan, Claire, or Mrs. Monster, and Andrea. I, I hope it's Andrea. Dang it, we should have asked. Andrea or Andrea. It's, it's hard to tell. But anyway, thank you guys so much. Cassidy, Megan, Claire. Andrea or Andrea? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're going to get another bad review. Oh, stop. <laughs> but before we get into our listener story for the week, uh, we have a pretty long intro with announcements and us discussing some things before we play the interview. So first, Rosie, you were on the peripheral this week. I was. And um, Burrito is on the podcast this week. Hey, Burrito. But yeah, most of our listeners know your story, but if you don't and you're listening, you can either hear it on episode 18 of our podcast or over on the peripheral, episode 60, which just came out this week. And we definitely recommend you go listen to that because he actually covered three different stories. Or just skip over mine and listen to theirs because I feel like I sound like a mutt butt. Mutt butt? Uh-huh. What's that? <laughs> um, it's a dog with a dirty butt. Well, I thought you sounded really good. Um, and anyways, all three of the stories were based on statutory rape. And I really appreciated the stories from Kara and Tiffany. They both had a huge impact on me. And I know that if you enjoy our show, you'll really appreciate this latest episode. Tiffany's story was actually kind of shocking. It was insane. Yeah, just the contrasting ways her parents have interacted with her after the fact and the way her religious community handled it all. I don't want to spoil anything yet in case you haven't heard it, but I would like to discuss it in more detail at some point because it was fascinating. I, just, I learned a lot between the statute of limitations at the time and the way religious organizations might sweep illegal activities especially child abuse, under the rug and quote-unquote deal with it themselves. What do you think of that, Rosie? Man, it was very interesting. I mean, that story was really crazy. Uh-huh. It was a hook and sinker for me. I don't want to like give anything away, though. Yeah, we're trying not to spoil it, but saying, like, go listen to it. Cause but yeah, that was very, very interesting. Yeah, we know that our audience will appreciate those stories. Um, so definitely go listen to that. And speaking of the peripheral, Justin's other show also hit me really hard this week. And again, I don't want to spoil that either. But if you haven't heard Generation Y's latest episode, definitely go listen to it. Um, In the near future, I really wanted to do an episode on the history of lynching. Because it really wasn't that long ago that it was happening right here in the U.S. And 
it really hit me a few weeks ago when we were in, in Duluth at the Glensheen Mansion. Mm-hmm. And they had those information boards up in the basement about the history of lynch mobs in Duluth, Minnesota. And that was when it really hit me that 60, 70 years ago, it really isn't that long. You know, the case that Jen Y talked about this week was in the 50s. And when we were in Duluth at the Glen Sheen, it broke my heart. Rosie, do you remember that little black girl that was seeing the boards while we were standing there? I do. She saw the photos that were up in the basement there, and there was this one photo in the streets of Duluth, and she asked her mom, what is that, and why are they doing that? And her poor mom was visibly uncomfortable because she wasn't prepared to have to explain these horrible things to her daughter this day, you know? They were just there having a nice family day. And she was little. She was probably like six or seven. Yeah. And the mom just kept telling her, this is what they used to do. And it broke my heart to listen to this and the the little girl's confusion about why the black people were tied up. Um, she was just she was just like, but why? You know? And it was really sad. So I found the story of the people that were in that particular photo and I just wanted to share a summary of it with you because this past Wednesday was Juneteenth, uh June nineteenth. And if you don't know, that's it's the anniversary of when slavery was abolished in the South. So it's a big deal. They're trying to make it a federal holiday. But Rosie, will you share the story of the people in the photo we saw from Duluth? Sure. But first, do you remember how the little girl and the mom, they're African-American, but the dad wasn't. And he was being such a turd. Remember? Yeah, he I was, was like, going to leave that out because I don't want to oh. malign anybody. But, yeah, he, he well, he was talking about how... He was like, they still do that to his little girl. I'm like, why are you... I mean, you're, this, she's so little, and this is freaking her out so bad. Why are you telling her? Yeah, and, well, and the mom was like, what do you mean? What are you talking about? And he didn't really have an answer. They mm-hmm. just kind of gotten into an argument. But That was super awkward. Anyway, yeah. Which is sad because it just shows really how uneducated a lot of people are about this situation. I mean, I don't really know a whole lot about it right now, which is why I want to do an episode on it and mm-hmm. do the research and, you know, spread awareness of the actual history and what's actually still happening, uh, yeah. racism in the United States, you know? Right. But anyway, I just want to share this other story quick before okay. we jump into our interview. So okay. you, will you go through that? Yes. On June 14, 1920, the John Robinson Circus came to Duluth, Minnesota for a parade and a one-day performance. They hired a lot of local people to work as day laborers for the circus while it was in town. A teenage white couple attended the circus that day. They were 19-year-old Irene Tuscan and 18-year-old James Sullivan. Later, James Sullivan told his father that something horrific had happened at the circus. He said that after the planned events of the circus had ended, the couple wandered around the grounds and ended up behind some of the tents. Then he said that the couple was held up at gunpoint by three black circus workers, and they had raped Irene. James' father immediately got in touch with Irene's father to let him know what had happened. The next day, her father reported this to the local police. And at the time, the chief of police in Duluth was John Murphy, and his reaction was pretty insane. 
John Murphy immediately rounded up 100 local black people who had been hired by the circus and made them line up for James and Irene to identify the attackers. They identified at least six men. So they had originally said there were three perpetrators, but somehow they identified six men. It's true that in a violent rape, it would be really hard to identify an attacker. But according to the story, James was also watching when she was attacked. And it's just kind of weird that they couldn't agree on the three people that they were identifying, you know. Mm -hmm. But then another detail came out. Irene's father took her to the doctor, but the doctor found no evidence of any physical assault or rape. Despite only identifying six men, 16 black men were arrested and thrown into the Duluth City Jail. News spread around town quickly, and before long, a huge mob of around 5,000 people were angrily making their way toward the jail. They were carrying makeshift tools, and they stormed and broke into the jail. But the commissioner of public safety ordered the officers and guards not to use any force against the people to stop them from entering. So essentially, these people are burglarizing and trespassing on a jail, but the local law enforcement weren't doing anything to stop it? The mob broke into three cells, dragging Elmer Clayton, Isaac McGee, and Elmer Jackson out of the jail and onto the streets. The three men pleaded for their lives while the crowd held a mock trial. Yeah, quote-unquote mock trial. And they were all found guilty with absolutely no evidence And so the mob dragged them up the street to the town square, and they were hanged. And this is just so disgusting. A local photographer took a picture of the horrifying scene, and it became a postcard keepsake. Yeah, and this is the photo that was in the basement of the Glenshean Mansion that this little girl saw that we were talking about earlier. And you can see it if you just Google Duluth lynching. It's the first result And it's really disturbing. But the crazy part is there was no proof that a crime actually happened in the first place. But 16 men were arrested and three of them ended up murdered. But somehow it continues to get worse from there. For the lynching, 37 white men were indicted. But only three of them were actually convicted of anything. And it wasn't for murder. It was only for inciting a riot. And they only got one year each. Yeah, one year each for taking part in murder. Now, there was plenty of evidence for probably all 37 of these white men to be found as first-degree murderers. I mean, this all happened in public. Everyone saw what was happening and that these men murdered these three black men. But what about the black men that were imprisoned for a crime with no evidence? Seven of the black men were indicted and served up to four years each. Yeah, so they were found guilty of the attack that there was no proof of. Seven of them, even though originally there were only three perpetrators of the alleged crime with no proof. Yet somehow, seven men get convicted and have to serve four times the amount of time the men who murdered these three black men served. It's just, it's a mind bender, and no matter which way you look at it, it's such a terrible and gross injustice. And this was only a hundred years ago, and in the grand scheme of time, that's not very long ago. Right now, the U.S. Senate is actually considering a resolution to make June 19th a federal holiday, 
So we already mentioned earlier what Juneteenth is, but Rosie, do you want to read a quick official description for us? Yes. Juneteenth, also known as Juneteenth Independence Day or Freedom Day, is an American holiday that commemorates the June 19, 1865 announcement of the abolition of slavery in the U.S. state of Texas, and more generally, the emancipation of enslaved African Americans throughout the former Confederate States of America. Yeah, so we just thought this was something important to think about and definitely recommend that you also go listen to episode 332 of Generation Y to hear the story of Emmett Till. It's another really moving story about racism and violence, and it's just crazy and sad to think that mm-hmm. this stuff has happened so recently and that it is still happening today. A lot of things we don't know about. You right. Know. Yeah, that that was a terrifying picture. And even, to me, even more terrifying than seeing those men dead, hanging, was seeing the faces of the people that did it. How they were so oh, yeah. proud. It was just They like, were just smiling and happy. There were kids and... Absolutely disgusting. Ugh. It was so scary. I, that, like, gave me nightmares. Yeah. Like, what kind of culture were they raising their kids in to have so much hate for mm-hmm. other people? <sighs> it's it's definitely something important to think about and to be understanding of why a lot of people are still sensitive about this because it wasn't that long ago. So anyway, um, we want to talk about that more in the future, but we're going to get into our listener interview now. We're actually releasing our listener interview a week earlier than we were planning because we have a couple of really thick and heavy stories that we're working on, and I needed a little more time for research to do them the justice they deserve. So those are taking a little longer for me to research. We already had this interview recorded, so yeah, we're going to be sharing that with you this week. And Also, we want to quickly remind you that we are going to be in Chicago in just a few weeks for the True Crime Podcast Festival. And that's on July 13th in Chicago at the Magnificent Mile Marriott. Downtown. So be sure to check that out at tcpf2019.com. Awesome. So we talked to Mia from Australia. She has a beautiful accent that we were both very... Hypnotized by. Yes. Yes. So that's who we're talking to this week. Now, let's jump into our interview with Mia. So, I was raised by my grandmother from the age of three. Um, My mum and dad split when I was three, and my dad got custody of me. Um, Back in that time, you know, I'd like to say I'm still 21, but I I know I'm not. Um, You know, so we're talking about in the 80s. Uh, Mum had to have done something pretty shocking to have lost custody of her child but um that was never divulged to me but it was hinted towards you know as I got a bit older uh, especially when my grandmother had been drinking a few drinks and and sort of would like to tell me some things so at that point my mum she decided to step out of my life uh, she decided that I was better off without her and um, unfortunately I never actually got a chance to get to know her uh, she passed away when I was 15. So I was then primarily raised by my grandmother. Um, I would go to my dad's on the weekends and stay with my nan during the week. Um, and she'd be responsible for getting me off to school and you know, making sure I was looked after. 
making sure I had everything I needed. And I can remember some very hairy times with my dad on the weekends where he would go to parties and I'd crash out on the lounge and I'd wake up back in my bed at home. So knowing my dad's probably driven drunk home and, you know, all that sort of thing. That's, you know, back in the 80s. So in regards to my grandmother, I can never remember exactly when the abuse started. It was probably always there. Um, During the day, my nan was the loveliest lady. She'd do anything for anyone. She'd give their last dollar if she could. But after 4 p.m., she'd start drinking. So I always refer to it as a Jekyll and Hyde. Um, She became a very different person after 4. Unfortunately, or should say fortunately, developed a coping strategy of not being able to actually remember what happened each previous, like from the previous night. I could tell you the next day that I'd had a rough night the night before, but I couldn't tell you what happened. Um, The only things I can sort of remember is that I was always on edge. I had to watch everything I'd say. I dare not say a word or she'd explode. Um, You know, I was told daily that I was not wanted that I would turn out just like my mother. As much as I was not physically abused, it was mostly verbal. I'd often wish at times that I was hit so I could actually feel physical pain. Um, So then the pain would go away. But after, you know, many, many years of of dealing with it, well, I I ended up in a situation where I had called on my my dad to see if he could help me get out of there. And uh, his situation didn't accommodate for me to move in with him. So uh, I realised that I had to save myself, I guess. So when I was 16, I moved out of home to escape the abuse. It took me many years to heal from all the hurt and dealing with what I had to grow up. But the one thing I'd always promised myself that I'd never allow anyone to treat me that way again. You know, inevitably, I tried to recreate this happy family that I thought I should have had growing up. So by the time I was 21, I'd been, I had two kids and I'd divorced twice. After a lot of work on myself, I finally forgave my nan. Uh, one of the things I'd come to realise over the years and having grown up a little bit was that she had uh, her own demons. She'd struggled with a horrendous childhood. Uh, She'd gone through domestic violence through her adult years and she just had horrible situation after horrible situation. And someone once once day said to me that the reason she was drinking was because that was her way of dealing with what she went through. And Mm. when I look at what she went through, it was an awful lot worse than whatever I did. So the good thing about being able to reflect on that um, you know, I was also able to look at the fact she was a very loving and affectionate person when she was sober. Um, I actually felt loved, you know, and I felt secure. I, I never felt like I was doing without during the day. And also to realise that the abuse was not actually about me. It was her deflecting how she felt about herself. Then I was actually able to heal. Um, this didn't happen until after my second marriage. And, you know, I spent a bit of time on my own and I started, started to look at why I kept thinking that marriage and, and, you know, all these kids was the the option that I needed to have to create the happy family that I, that I thought I needed. So after this time, um, you know, I, I realised that <laughs> one marriage wasn't for me, <laughs> that, that men weren't actually going to be the solution to my problems. So when I finally did get back to starting to date, it was never about needing to have a man in my life. It was about they were an added extra 
you know. So um, and I was always very cautious of men that came into my life purely because as a child at the age of seven I was molested twice by two different people. One was a babysitter and the other one was a friend's brother. So I had a fair idea of the sinister things uh, that were out there and the type of people that were around. So any guy I ever dated, I watched like a hawk. Um, My kids had locks on their doors at night so that I knew that they were always safe behind those doors. So really the story that I'm telling today is not actually about my abuse because, as I said before, there's not an awful lot that I could actually tell you because I don't remember a lot of it. I just know that it happened. But this is actually my story about what it's like to be a parent of a child who'd been molested. So so I'm going to tell this part of my story um, in perspective of how this affected me. This is no reflection of my son and his experiences. Um, I do have permission to talk about this from him. Um, He's okay with that. And I've also, you know, run through with him what exactly I'm going to say. So um, I'm going to start the story back on two years ago when I actually found out my son was 19. Um, For many years he'd been struggling with mental health issues uh, he'd started medication for depression and he'd started counselling. He'd just started dating a girl from his school and the girlfriend had been dealing with her own demons, which included being raped at a party one night. She'd spent a lot of their time talking about how this had affected her and how it impacted their relationship. So on my son's last counselling appointment, he told the counsellor what had happened to him. At this stage, I had no real idea about anything. I had a slight idea that something didn't seem right, but I would ask my son and he would deny everything. This appointment and with the support of his girlfriend, he told me that a close family friend of ours had been having sex with him since he was nine years old. Oh, wow. Yeah, I can remember sitting there. I was shocked. At this stage, we had broken contact with this man as I'd been feeling on edge about his attention to my son. Um, One night when my son was 14, this man had come over and he was very drunk and in a conversation he asked me once that if when my son turned 18 would it be okay if he could date him oh wow and, yeah and I yeah. look I, I thought it honestly I thought he was joking and I laughed it off at the time but it still played in my mind how old was this man uh, he was the same age as me at the time so he would have been in his mid-30s yeah, he was very drunk, and I just thought, oh, you know, that that that'd be funny because it, it would depend on if my son was even going to turn out gay. And just, I had a lot of respect for this man because he'd done what I had perceived as so much for my son, and not realizing that there was sinister motives for it. So I asked my son if anything had ever happened, and he said no. So I was still on edge about it, and I didn't feel comfortable with him around my son, and we'd actually moved away. So the last contact we'd had with him was when my son was 16. So we didn't have any contact between 14 and 16. And my son asked if he could stay the night at this man's house after we'd been there for dinner. I asked him if he felt safe and comfortable to do it. And I kept thinking, well, this guy's a decent enough that he would never approach my son until he was of legal age, you know, and that my son then could consent because I always raised my children to make their own choices. I didn't want them to ever feel like they had to get my approval for anything it was whatever choice they chose was the consequences they'd have to live with so I wasn't gonna you know prejudge any situation other than you know if my son was underage so um the night of the dinner while we're having dinner with this man and his partner I kept asking my son if he was 
comfortable to stay. And he said he was. So now I'm sure there's probably many people out there who are thinking, how could this woman be so stupid to leave her son where he was at risk? Believe me, I ask myself that every day. This man in my eyes was an uncle figure to my son. As my son has always been different, he went through all his schooling with dyslexia. He was bullied a lot at school. There was a lot of questions if he was on the spectrum as if he had a few oddities about him that made it hard for people to get close to him. And we had very little family around except my ex-husband, which was my son's dad. Then entered this man into my ex-husband's life. He was this fun-loving neighbour who seemed to understand my son and had so much time for him. I was so pleased that finally someone could see what a loving and beautiful soul my boy has. He would make so much time for my son and I could I didn't see anything sinister in it at all. My son was living at his dad's place at that stage when he was nine. His dad worked a lot of late hours and this man happily put his hand up to look after him until his dad got home from work. This is when my son said the sexual abuse started. So fast forward many years later, I was talking to someone about this man and this was after, this was around the time my son was about 17 and it was after the last time we had contact with him. And I sort of talked to this person about how I'd felt uncomfortable with his attention to my son, you know, describe what had happened and the dynamic of it all. And this, pus- this person looked me in the eye and he just said, he was grooming your son. And it was like this light switched on. Suddenly everything mm-hmm. fell into place. It was, it was so hard to explain, but without a doubt, I knew this man had been grooming my son. By this point, my son was about 17. I asked him again if anything had happened, and he'd said no again. I could sense there was more to what had happened, but the more I tried to push my son, the more he shut down. So I just sat back and I waited until he was ready to talk. But in the meantime, I'd organised some counselling and mental health plans, which over here in Australia, a mental health plan is... um, a system set up by our health system called Medicare where they will pay for 10 visits to a psychologist or a counsellor, um, you know, for, for, for the year uh, and as long as you can show signs of depression or anxiety or something to do with mental health. So back to two years ago when he finally told me, he did it over a series of three days. He'd only talked to me when we were in the car and he was driving. He always found it was less confrontational if he was able to have this conversation while not looking at me. I slowly managed to get him to open up. I had to be very careful about the questions that I asked as I didn't want him to close back up. It had taken this long for him to finally feel comfortable to talk to me. He told me of the seven years of sexual abuse from this man and in the last year the man's partner joined in as well. I asked my son, did this man actually ever threaten him to not tell, tell us? And he'd said no, but he was so scared that if he told us, he'd stop getting the attention. And at that point, I was working all the time. I was studying. His dad was always, you know, working. And I thought that that was the best thing, that I was supporting my family and I was supporting my kids. I was a sole parent, even though I had a lot of support from my ex-husband and not realising that it left my kids feeling alone a lot. So... And so my son's dad was dealing with his own demons um, at that point too. So he was often very distant even when he was home. So the, this man 
found a way to to make my son feel special so that he would agree to everything he wanted from him. I'd also ask my son that if I hadn't always been working, if this ever would have happened, and he he said possibly no. Now, I don't want to talk about how my son felt about any of this. I'm talking from my perspective of what it's like to be the parent who finds out. Um, I can never discuss or describe how my son feels because that's just doing a disservice to what he's going through. And he does still struggle with this to this day. Um, So for myself, I was heartbroken. Even in the last contact with this man, I was feeling uneasy about his attention to my son, but I still found it so hard to accept what had happened to him. Over the few days of talking to many people who were close to me, I started to process it and I became extremely angry. I wanted to rip this man apart and I wanted to march into the nearest police station and report him, but my son was not ready for that. I watched him become lighter, though. He seemed to have this weight lifted off his shoulders. He'd finally shared his secret, but he also didn't want to discuss it any further. He didn't want to go back to counselling, and he didn't want to go to the police. He just wanted to forget it ever happened. Then slowly his mental health started deteriorating. I didn't know what I could do for him. I could see him hurting, but I couldn't get him to open up. As for myself, I became withdrawn from everyone. I started withdrawing from my four-year-old. I was so scared I couldn't protect her. I got so anxious in public spaces when I couldn't see my youngest. It was even when she was in playgrounds, I hated her going into tunnels where I couldn't see her. I was a nervous wreck and I couldn't help my son. So I made the decision that I needed to help myself. I started counselling. I managed, (laughs) I remember many sessions just crying um, and telling her about my guilt. As for my son, the guilt was always there. I couldn't help him, so I I sent him up to his dad's in hope that being around his dad might help him. Then one night I got a call from my son, and he just finished watching the show um, 13 Reasons Why, the second season. Mm -hmm. And I'd also just finished watching it myself about 10 minutes before he rang, so I knew he could be struggling. So I asked him if he was okay, and he broke down and said no. I asked him what part of it had been affecting him. Was it the suicide or was it the sexual assault? And he said it was the sexual assault. Then he sobbed and I was so helpless. At that point, I was living three hours away from him and all I could do, wanted to do was hop in my car and get to him. Instead, I chose to listen to him. That night, he told me in detail what had happened to him and it broke my heart that my sweet little boy had been through this. We talked for a long time. I managed to talk him off the ledge and get him to calm down. He said to me that none of what happened to him was my fault because he was worried. He was scared that I was blaming myself. And I said to him, I don't blame myself for what this man did as that's on this evil man's conscience. But what I will always blame myself for is that I didn't notice. So flash forward to now. Um, everything's a lot better. I actually quit my job of working shift work and being away from the family all the time so that I could retrain. I'm now retraining to be a community services worker. Um, I wanted to be able to help my son as best I can and to maybe one day help other families who are going through this. My son is back living with me and he's here actually while I'm doing this interview. 
he doesn't want to talk, but he's okay with me sharing his story from my perspective. It's going to be a long support, but he's got some great, great family support here. He has his older sister, who is also trained to be a community services worker. And the reason that she said that she wanted to do that was because she wanted to help her brother when uh, she saw him struggling with his mental health. So he's now getting two qualified people. They're going to be hopefully able to help him, uh, you know, further. So that's our story, or at least the story from my perspective. Wow. First of all, tell him thank you from us that he let you share the story. And Mm -hmm. it is fascinating to get this different perspective. And it seems like the biggest thing you struggled with is feeling bad that you didn't notice what was going on you know it's it's all these small things and, and it wasn't until that friend of mine had said to me this this man is grooming your son that everything that was so plain and simple and was out there just suddenly fell into place like I had mm. been so super vigilant to every guy that came into my house that I was in a relationship with thinking that my kids were at risk from these men And it turned out it came from left of centre where it came from someone else who I wasn't in a relationship with and someone that I had encouraged my son to have this this relationship with because I thought this man saw him as a nephew, you know, and and it was was the hardest part was that that I had encouraged Mm. because I saw someone who saw the best in my child, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and not realizing that he actually had sinister motives. And it really shows how hard it is to identify that and mm-hmm. how manipulative people can be to get what they want. Having um, dealt with what I went through growing up and, um, you know, with what my son's gone through uh, and now with studying, working with children at risk, you, you see it all the time. They talk about the stereotypical pedophile and, I, I could literally tick all the boxes with this man. You know, he he got us on side, us as parents. He made us feel confident with him and made us believe that he only had my son's best interest at heart. He then got my son on his side and he offered my son, he said he found my son's weakness, which was that my son was lonely. You know, he was he was always you know doing everything from he was a very independent child. Um I had worked you know, I've always worked. Um, I'm the type of person that seems to thrive when I'm working. I'm definitely not a housewife. Um, so going to work was was what I thought was best for, for my family. And this, this person just saw that as an opportunity of picking his, his victim, you know, and, and targeting him and getting him on side. And it wasn't until... I drew my ex-husband's attention to my concerns about this man grooming him. My ex-husband said, well, there's been concerns of this man with other children. And I was like, well, why didn't you connect that there was a risk with your own son? Um, you know, he didn't find out these risks these other about these other children until after our son had grown up. But it was, it, you know, th- this man's still actually out there and still having contact with people. No, which is so scary. This kind of thing can can ruin people's lives and cause them to give up and stuff. But you've used it as a way to learn and to get stronger when you're helping other people deal with it. And even you said your daughter's also working. Yeah, yeah my oldest as well. Yeah, and she wants to you know work with um, children that are at risk. 
um, for me, I think, um, you know, I initially sort of, I needed to do the study to understand what happened and to understand why I felt the way I did. And, and then it actually became a passion for me. And I'd, I'd love to work with children at risk, but I'd also love to work with, you know, families. I'd, I'd love to be support to some other parents who have been through this because, you know, how, how does a parent ever process what has happened when they've not been the perpetrator? You know, if they've, you know, they've, they've been victimised in, in the sense that they, they've been used and targeted to, for their children. And, I mean, like, for me personally, I... I would not consider dating anyone anymore. Um, not that, not even that that came from that angle. Um, I just have no trust of, of anyone. I have uh, my daughter, my youngest is now six, um, and I just wouldn't even consider introducing anyone into our family that could potentially abuse her because I, ju- I just have no trust of anyone anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you're a good mom putting your children first like that yeah and with that that thought of um what if I had done that the first time you know it's um then perhaps this person hadn't wouldn't have got in but a lot of the research that I've done a lot of the people that I've listened to I listen to a lot of podcasts about you know victims and and um you know pedophiles and and that you know he would have found another way in like as much as um, I think that I probably could have stopped it. I think he would have found some other way to, to win his way. Mm-hmm. And, sure. Uh, and- I really applaud you. I mean, you felt the guilt and it must have been just terrible being a mother. But instead of just feeling the guilt, you really took it to your stride going on to help protect other people. I really applaud you for that, Mia. Yeah. And I mean, like my, my main focus at the moment, you know, too, is still protecting my son. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're doing a lot of work with him. Um, his mental health has, uh, you know, it's, it's up and down. Uh, he has his good days. He has his bad. He has, he suffers anxiety now. He can't be in a room with a male. Um, he gets very anxious. He struggles to talk to people. For example, we had a mental health appointment today and he, he really struggled with being comfortable talking to a complete stranger. But um, you know he's he's making steps and he's wanting to to help himself and and allow us to help him as well. So whereas you know a, a year and a half ago, I couldn't even get him to talk to anyone about it. Well, you and your daughter seem like the best support system for him now. Yeah. <laughs> All the things you've been trying to do. Often, well, every day sends him a message telling him how much she loves him. You know she's she. She's unfortunately a bit more bossy than me, and she's <laughs> what he has to do. <laughs> um, whereas I at least try to give him an option. Uh, typical um, of the older sister, though, yeah. <laughs> in the same way. <laughs> Definitely. Well, I, I think you know, at, at the end of the day, that's her personality, and and I'm a little bit more sort of allowing him to sort of make his his way in in this path just knowing that we're all beside him to do it. One really important thing that just from listening to you that's running through my head is even if you were as educated as you are now for identifying those signs, the real perpetrator, the person that's causing the problem is the abuser. And, you know, you can't always stop them. And it's not the fault of anyone that may have been able to notice and try to stop it. It's the fault of the perpetrator. And it's important to remember that that's where the blame should lie and 
people should never blame themselves for it. And I think, too, one of the things that I'm identifying is that the more people I talk to about it, because I'm very open about my story and um, whatever's happened to me, the more I talk to people, the more I find people that have been through the same thing. And devastatingly, there's so many people that have have experienced the same thing. You know, um, my son was lucky. He had a family who was stood behind him. I've got friends who um, whose family didn't. You know, they just didn't believe them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and I think that's one thing my son's grateful for is that we have his back. You know, at no point has he ever felt like he was not going to be believed. Um, you know, and I don't know if we'll ever be able to do anything or take it any further. Um, I have actually been um, has been suggested that. Over here, uh, we have what's called FACS, which is uh, Family and Children's Services. Oh, and yeah. I can actually put a report in to them about this person. Um, and as much as they can't, like, prosecute him or anything, he will at least be flagged. So that if his name comes up in conjunction to any other cases, then there's a possibility that they'll be able to sort of maybe come and confirm with us or it'll show that he's got a record or a history of doing these things. At this point, I think, sadly, there's not enough done with victims who do come forward to to um, get charges put against their perpetrators because uh, one, like even as my son said when he first told me, was how could I prove it? You know, this happened, well, now it would be... Uh, five years, no, five years ago. Yeah, five years ago was probably the last contact we had with this person. Um, but you know, it's not like as a nine year old he sat there writing things down or getting proof of any of this. Yeah, uh, so so how it'd be his word against my son's, and and I just don't think he's strong enough or prepared to do it. Um, at this point, so. You know, as I say, that the only option we've got at the moment is to at least put the report into to facts and and have some kind of record there that that something's been that has happened. We really appreciate you talking about this because, I mean, you're a really great example of being a good support system for your son and even your daughter too. Like just the fact that you are so supportive and you believed him and you did everything you could to help after the fact. That's something that's so important because you can't always prevent these things from happening. If the perpetrator will find a way, unfortunately, yeah. but yeah, you know they're very conniving and they they find a way to to weasel their way in. But well, they look for someone who's an easy target, you know, and and they just think that he was an easy target. He was he was at home often on his own. Being that support system is really important, and we really appreciate hearing that. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you want to talk about? No, I think that's, I I just wanted to um, perhaps also give victims an understanding of perhaps why their parents acted a certain way when they were told. For me, it took quite a few days to process it, Um, you know, and my reactions were that he needed to take action and he needed to do all this. And it wasn't because I was trying to force my son into doing anything. It was because I I wanted to make sure this man came to to be punished. But, you know, once I had a chance to process it and, and back off a little bit, I realised that that wasn't the right sort of thing for my son. So, and I, and I don't think any parent could ever 
prepare themselves for what for this ever happening. Like I had been again, as I said, super vigilant about it, and uh, it still ended up happening. Mm-hmm. Definitely, it was um, probably one of the hardest things in my entire life. Even the abuse that I'd gone through was nothing compared to to knowing that one of your children's been hurt. Well, it shows that you really love your kids. Yeah, <laughs> I, that's really nice to see. I'm so happy that we got the perspective. Well, I'm not happy, but I think it's really important to have the perspective of a parent. We haven't gotten that. It's, it's often, uh, and I'm not saying that that well, my experience is anything compared to what a victim goes through, but it's just just a, a different perspective of another person in the the whole scenario. It's an important perspective. These parents who've been taken made a fool of, I guess um, that's at least how I felt. Um, you know, that's. I've been a victim as well, but not anywhere near the degree that my son has. But I've definitely, um, you know, been being used to to yeah. access my, my child. Yeah. Well, we really appreciate you talking to us. I personally really enjoyed listening to you talk. Yes, we love your accent, <laughs> and I'm sure yeah, you hate ours because it's terrible. Mine's <laughs> a bit of a mix. I'm actually originally from New Zealand, and um, but I live in Australia. Oh, that's so I get, Ryan I get, loves New Zealand. <laughs> yeah, I get given a bit of flack from everyone because I, you know, I speak to someone in New Zealand, they say I, say I sound like an Aussie, and I speak to someone in Australia, and they say I sound like a Kiwi. So funny. New Zealand accents are my favorite. Like yeah. uh, I don't know if you've seen the Avengers movies or Thor Ragnarok, but I love the Korg character, the rock guy. Yeah, my son's gesturing <laughs> over here at the moment going, yes, his favorite movies. <laughs> oh, sweet. Me too. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks right, for giving well, me a chance to, to have, you know, sort of talk about what it was like, you know, and, and to, to share my story. Yeah. Thank you for being willing to. We want to say thank you again to Mia for sharing your story with us. Yeah, it was really nice to get this different perspective and really understand how easily a parent can be manipulated and used to get to their child. It's definitely something to be on the lookout for. So we really appreciate you being vulnerable and sharing it with us, Mia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, love this perspective. So interesting and so educational for our listeners. Yeah, you know? it's a perspective that some of our other listeners might relate to. Mm-hmm. And we also want to apologize because it was like eight in the morning when we did our call with her. So we were both pretty like, you know, not fully socially ready yet, but we did our okay. best. <laughs> and Can you go Mia was pretty great. Without apologizing, I think not. Huh? I don't <laughs> think I can. No. No. Well, Mia, keep up the great work on trying to make a difference in the future of your family and others. Now we're going to get into the review portion of the show. And this week, I think we're actually going to start sharing two reviews per show. What? Because we've been getting so many that we'll never share them all if we don't start doing two. So. Okay. But that is not to discourage you. (laughs) from leaving a review if you haven't yet feel free to leave us a review if you want to five star review or negative con contents in our email yeah (laughs) i don't know if what you just said makes sense i'll figure it out okay (laughs) (laughs) all right so i'll share the first review um it's entitled addictive from jackie in the low country of the united states she or he, 
I'm thinking she, but who knows? Jackie could go either way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> says this podcast always starts out with warnings for sensitive listeners. They should warn you that you will become addicted. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It, it continues. I'm trying to catch up on all the old shows and it'll be like a Netflix series. When I catch up, I'll be impatient to have to wait for only one new show a week to come out. I hear that. I've tried out a lot of podcasts, and really most of them I just can't stand. But Rosie and Ryan are a wonderful team. They aren't weird. <laughs> wow. That, I've, we've never heard that before. Thank you. They aren't weird, showy, or vulgar. They are sensitive, down-to-earth people you feel... You'd love having as your next door neighbors. Love your podcast. Five stars. Thank you so much, Jackie. That's really sweet. Very much so. We (laughs) enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, I love that. (laughs) They start out with a warning for sensitive listeners, but they should warn you that you will become addicted. I love it. All right, the next one is entitled Love Them says this is such a great podcast their message in focusing on the victims not the perpetrators is so important it's like you're talking to your very knowledgeable best friends this is my favorite podcast you guys are the best we'll order a t-shirt soon (laughs) from taylor law via apple Podcasts, united states awesome thank you taylor i love these reviews that say it's like um You'd love having as your next door neighbors or they're like your best friends. Like, we really appreciate that because sometimes we hear that we uh, waffle on a little too much Mm -hmm. about our own personal lives. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know that may be true, but we feel feel like it's connected us to you guys a little more. Mm -hmm. And if you appreciate that type of thing, you're the type of person that we want listening to our show. So thank you guys for saying these things. That's what we really want while we're doing this show is to form personal connections to you guys and bring these stories to life in a way that you feel you can feel what's happening in them, you know? And what better way than to hear it from a friend? So there you go. Yeah. Well, thank you guys all so much for listening and your feedback. Thank you again to our patrons. You guys are so great. Um, If you're new here, you can follow us on Instagram at VOVpodcast and on Twitter at VOVpod or email us at VOVpodcast at gmail.com. Check out our Threadless store for shirts. Yes. And we're going to order more merch so we can get our Patreon envelopes out soon. Yes. Um, We will be sending out Patreon packages after the first of the month. Um, So if you haven't gotten yours yet, and it's been a while, it will be coming. We promise. Um, There was one more. Oh, yeah. You said Threadless Store. Mm -hmm. There is a link to that in our show notes every week. Um, But if you aren't sure, it's just vovpodcast.threadless.com. And we've gotten some questions about what that is. So, yeah. It's pretty simple. Is there anything else? Oh, join our Facebook group, Voice of the Victim Support System. And I think that's about it. Yep, I just I want to have my candy now. So. Yep. All right. <laughs> well, thank you again for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye.